and I want you to listen to Isaiah 5. So let me read it. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That just uh, means the people of God, the men of Judah, the people of God, are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, And opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitudes will go down, her revelers, and he who exults in her, man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the Holy One shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, and draw sinners with cart ropes, who say, let us be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, let him come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry crass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. 
For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Well, that is a moving and somber and sober chapter. Let me footnote this in two ways before we begin. One, as I said, listen. Please listen. All I have had the benefit of is listening to it for the last seven days. Please listen. And secondly, tuck away in your minds that the toughest passages in Scripture, and you'll see this when we're done, yield, in a sense, the most powerful blessings to us because they lead us, if we listen, with soft hearts to turn to God to find our security in him and in Jesus, who is, as Andy read, the true vine. Now you'll see inside the service sheet three points that reflect, I think, the essence of Isaiah's word from the Lord. Firstly, God's broken heart. Secondly, God's somber exposure of sin. And thirdly, God's gracious intent. Firstly, God's broken heart, verses 1 to 7. They are powerful words, what I have described as a love song lament. These words are contradictions in terms. A love song that is a lament, or a lament that is a love song. That's what we have here, though. It begins, verse 1, with Isaiah singing the song to the God he loves. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his, that is God's, vineyard. But as the song continues... It is clear that Isaiah is singing not his song, but the Lord's song. The Lord's song of lament to his people. So what we have here is not a lament to God. It is a lament from God. And the Lord is brokenhearted. His heart expresses deep anguish, deep disappointment, by the unfaithfulness, the desertion of his people. Now, there will be occasions in all our lives when we have felt deep disappointment. The pain of being let down. Disappointed, a broken relationship. In that anguish, we feel a pale reflection here of the broken heart of God as he considers the state of his people that he has loved.
Now, I wonder if the broken heart of God as he looks towards his people is an emotion, an attribute that we attribute to God. I think we are comforted often in the knowledge that God feels our pain when we suffer. I find that a great comfort, that when I pray to God, through Jesus, God knows and understands the pain that humanity experiences. I wonder, though, if we think often of God as he looks at our lives, our corporate life as a church family here and beyond to the church more widely, I wonder if we think enough about the broken-heartedness of God as he does that, the anguish, the disappointment he feels. After all, he is our father. Fathers feel anguish for their children. Now, the song or lament concerns a vineyard that the owner has lavished his attention on. It's the prize garden in the Chelsea Flower Show. The owner has done everything he can to see that the vineyard will be fruitful. He has planted it on soil that is fertile, the end of verse 1. It has been properly dug and cleared of stones. Verse 2. Choice vines have been planted. The very best from garden world. The owner has built a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard to protect it and a wine vat to store the vintage. In the end of verse 2, the owner anticipates the fruit, the vintage from his investment. He looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And don't hear that. He looked for it, but he knew it wouldn't, so he was storing up his anger for when it didn't. It's not what he's saying. He looked for it. He longed for it. He loved it, that it would yield fruit. And yet... It yields wild grapes. The word for wild grapes is stinking, rotten fruit. And now verse 3, he appeals to his listeners, to the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, God's people that he is addressing. He says to them, judge for yourselves, is there anything else I could have done that I have failed to do to make this vineyard fruitful? What more could I have done for this vineyard that it might be fruitful that I have not done? And that's, of course, a question when God asks it that yields a a kind of silence in our hearts. And verse 5, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. He says, I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled down. It will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Striking image, isn't it? Think of your garden, which maybe or maybe not is like a prize garden in the Chelsea Flower Show. 
Just imagine it is. Somebody here will have a garden like that. Imagine if you did nothing to it and did not cultivate it, cut the grass, hoe the flower beds, or anything for a year. What state would it be in? That's what God says he will do. Because there is no fruit, the vineyard will be destroyed. Now, let me encourage you not to hear bitterness or wickedness in this lament. God cannot be vindictive. God cannot amass any emotion in his heart that says, I told you so. God will never say, I gave you chance after chance after chance to listen. He is not vindictive. He is simply brokenhearted as he looks upon a covenant people that he has loved in which he has invested so much and they have turned from him and there is no fruit. It is a heartbroken lament from God to his people for what might have been but is no longer. Now, verse 7 gives us the explanation of what this parable about a vineyard is about. And in the explanation of verse 7, we find the answer to the question at the end of verse 4. The question at the end of verse 4, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. The vineyard is the people of God, simply that. God's people in Isaiah's day and by parallel, God's people today. The people Isaiah is preaching to are the vineyard. Notice in verse 7 how they are described as his pleasant planting, his best treasure. He wanted and did give them the very best because he loved for them. He cared for them deeply. And they have produced nothing but wild grapes. Isaiah tells us now what good fruit is, what the fruit is that God is looking for from his people, and what bad fruit is. You see it at the end of verse 7. Just look at that with me. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Just glance across the page to verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. What does God look for in his people? God looks for his qualities in his people. That is what fruitfulness means. It is godliness. It is godness in his church. Or Christ-likeness in his church. It is the righteousness, the holiness of his Son and all that he is infused into the church. Whether the old covenant people of God or the covenant people of God today, bad fruit, rotten fruit, is injustice, ungodliness, unrighteousness.
So there is something strikingly significant in a country when a church says that the primary expression of God's love relationally, the primary picture that God has given humanity in all of its history to display the intimate relationship between his son and his son's bride, the church, is wrong. And that is exactly what the big major church in our nation has done. And Isaiah says to us, listen. There's something very striking about the second half of verse 7 that we fail to see in our English translations. I just checked with Andy Robertson this week on the Hebrew. He's an expert in Hebrew. He gets high marks in his Hebrew tests. Now, on the basis that very few of you are experts in Hebrew, let me show you this. In Hebrew, verse 7b, the words for justice and bloodshed and the words for righteousness and outcry sound exactly the same. Let me read them to you. And he looked for justice, mispat is the Hebrew word, and behold, bloodshed, mispah, very similar. For righteousness, sedakwa, but behold, an outcry, se'akwa. See what he's saying. What he's saying is that on the surface, there seemed to be hardly any difference between what God wanted from them and what they were doing. But in truth, the difference is as stark as night as is day, as good food is from rotten fruit. And the people of God then had the outward facade of religion, all the rituals, the ceremonials, the assemblies, the sacrifices in place, the veneer of religious respectability was impeccable. It looked on the surface like good fruit. But it was rotten. And it broke God's heart. Now you and I find it hard to see the difference between righteousness, sedaqwa, and an outcry, sedaqwa, often. But God sees into the heart, and he sees a world of a difference. This afternoon, there will be a great celebration in Princess Street Gardens of all the good that the major denomination, the Church of Scotland in our country, is doing. And it is doing much good. But in light of yesterday, it's just false. It is. So God's Word says, anyway... God's love song for his people, his broken heart. Now, in verses 8 to 30, to which we now turn, 
What God does through his prophet Isaiah is set out what is a somber exposure of the sin of God's people. He unpacks what it is that has led to their unfruitfulness, what is wrong with their hearts. Our sins are not their sins, maybe. We are not Judah in the 8th century. But our hearts as God's people now have the propensity, at least mine, to be just like the hearts of God's people then, turning from God. Now, I want to ask you to do something again. It's right, I think, this morning, given what is happening nationally, that we allow God's Word to speak to that. But that's done now. I want to turn the spotlight now on us. The big risk is you shine it out, isn't it? Shine it now on us, on our hearts. Let me ask you again to listen. I just wonder if here there are some hackles in some hearts because you do not want to believe that God's Word says what it says. Please listen with soft hearts. And remember that God's heart is a broken heart, not a vindictive heart, a broken heart. Now, what uh, we get in verses 8 to 30 is a somber exposure of sin. You'll have noticed two words there, woe and therefore, six woes, each of them a somber exposure of sin in the people of God, the therefores are the consequence of sin. Isaiah's preaching then, his message from God exposed the sin of God's people, the true state of their hearts, and said there are consequences of rebellion, of turning away from God, or consequences of not listening. There are consequences of not trusting God or not obeying God, and there are consequences still today for us as his people of not trusting and obeying him, whether corporately or individually. Sometimes I think, we think, it'll be all right because Jesus has come. But Jesus himself said again and again, you need to listen and obey and trust me. If you are, as we'll see in a few minutes, a branch that is attached to the vine that is Jesus in a real spiritual way by the Holy Spirit, and do not allow Christ's likeness to suffuse through you, God our Father doesn't say that doesn't matter. There are consequences, therefores. There is no exaggeration, no hype in God's voice. There is no spin. There is no getting away from the truth, for he can only speak truth. And as his people in our day, we are wise to listen. I often think, as the minister of this church, the only church in the world that I want to be a minister in, I hope that continues. It's true. I often think that, as a church, you have you've done well to listen and do stuff that is hard. And now we find ourselves on the road. And I often think now, as a church, now is the time we really need to listen. Listen to God's Word. Before He lets us, in a sense, land somewhere permanently again, listen. 
And let him burn up the dross in all our lives, our hearts, minister, elders, staff, members, young and old. Listen to God's exposure of sin. The first woe, verse 8, is greed. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, but there is no more room. And the point here is that uh, in Israel and Judah, God had said, it's my land, not yours. So when you divide it up, don't build big houses for you and little ones for everybody else. That's the point, I think, then. That's not true of us, I guess. But the issue at the heart of it is human greed. There was greed amongst God's people then, a desire to amass wealth, property, exploit others. We need to be careful in application. There were specific stipulations there. But the principle is timeless. Uh, It is the way of the world, I think, to amass stuff in which and upon which we place our security. We all have a propensity for that. It's not that wealth is wrong or being a property tycoon is wrong. Not at all. It is about where we place our hearts and our desires and our security. It is the way of the world. But God's people are to march to not the drumbeat of the world, but to God's drumbeat, which is to live with good things, yes. But in the knowledge that we will live for all of eternity without them, where our true security is to be found. The consequences, verses 9 and 10 of exploitation, and Isaiah will take us into the realm of material exploitation. I think as evangelical churches, we need to hear stuff about injustice and poverty that we are kind of wary of thinking and talking about. Isaiah will not let us off with that. The consequences, verses 9 and 10, are stark. Their houses will be desolate. Their greed will lead them to losing what they have accumulated. Don't make decisions in life due to money. Just don't. The second woe, verses 11 and 12, is exposure of a lifestyle of indulgence. Isaiah's focus is on drunkenness and parties. Um, My Bible commentaries uh, suggest an application here. It's probably like your city or town on a Saturday night, and and probably that's what he is saying. I'm concerned, though, and I think God is concerned here through his prophet not to give the impression that he is a killjoy, not to say that the kind of stuff in our culture... is something that Christians should isolate themselves entirely from. There's a line, think of a book like Daniel, he drew a line. But he is saying that the Christian community, when it comes to this kind of stuff that he talks about here, the whole realm of drunkenness and lifestyle and all that stuff you realize and know that is out there, the Christian community should be distinctive, different, but it's not. It's just the same then, and I guess often today. And if you're sitting here thinking, 
oh, these Christians are bad when they do that kind of stuff, well, there's probably an idol in your heart and mine too, just a different one. And when we live in a way that is not distinctive or different, and let me underscore, it does not mean withdrawal. Israel and Judah were to be then and the church today a light in the nation to the nation, salt distinction in it, not away from it. When God's people live in that way, the end of verse 12, we do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hand. We stop thinking about God and his priorities. We don't see what he is doing. His purposes are not our concerns. His priorities are not ours. We lack spiritual perception. Divine sight. The divine sight to look ahead and see where things are. And in the end, there are consequences. God's judgment comes, verses 13 to 17. God calls his people then to be distinctive, to be different, to be a light to the nations around them. That is fruitfulness, but instead, their lives were lived for self and not for him. Just like the nations around them, no distinctiveness, and judgment came. Greed, indulgence, living for ourselves and not for God. No distinctive lines. Blurring, we need to listen. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sinners with card ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Now, what's Isaiah saying here? It's hard to be sure, I think. What I think he's saying is he's exposing God's people in a way that they live indifferently to sin in their lives. You know, you've got a, say, you've got a cart that's attached to you. You just kind of live with that cart behind you. It's just there. It's tied to you with ropes and cords. It's harnessed to you. And it's just there, and you begin to justify it. Whatever it is in your life and mine, it is justified by lies. And uh, verse uh, 19 is arrogant defiance of God. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work. It's almost, come on, God. Come on, then. It's dangerous stuff. And there are arrogant ways of defying God's word. Verse 20 is the consequence of that. Woe to those who call what is evil good. Woe to those who say what is darkness is light. Woe to those who say what God and his word says is sin is good. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Let me appeal to you again with my footnote to listen to God, not me. Listen to God. Listen to the challenge from God in his word. 
Do you have the bottle? Really? To say to God that you are wiser than him? And shrewder than him? Judgment, destruction will come, verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The point that Isaiah is making here is that the inner rottenness at the root eventually will destroy itself. The turning away from God, the rebellion, will lead to disintegration from within. And you know that yourself. I look back on my life as a Christian. There are periods of there are periods in my life where my life was fruitful, and there are periods of fruit less fruitfulness, not fruitlessness. And when there is less fruitfulness, there is drift. You understand that? Drift. Just Stuff isn't right. And when there is drift, drift is dangerous because drift can become turning away. And when you've turned away, then you're a long way away. We're going to Cornwall in the summer and there'll be red and yellow flags on the beaches. And the big danger in the Cornish beaches are rip currents. Rip currents get you And all of a sudden, you find you're a long, long way away from the shore. And rip currents get you when your guard is down. Rip currents spiritually get you when your life is in the phase of drift. And fire from God will destroy them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord, verse 25, was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand and he struck them. And the mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. For Israel in Isaiah's day, this meant their destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. For Judah and Jerusalem, it would mean destruction at the hands of the Babylonians and exile. These nations are God's agement of judgment for his people. So verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations far away, whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. Verse 29, their roaring is like a lion. You can almost hear in 700 BC the lions of Babylon beginning to prowl. A hundred years later, this great facade of Jerusalem, the temple, the walls, the institution, was destroyed, and the lions of Babylon prowled around. Strong words, a somber exposure of sin with serious consequences. Now, as I said earlier, we are not 8th century Judah and Jerusalem, but our human natures are the same, and all around us we see the same seeds and symptoms of rebellion. All around us, I mean all around ourselves. Are we listening to God? Am I, am I greedy for material things at the expense of others? Are we overly self-indulgent, committed to our own pleasures and our desires? Are we listening and obeying God's command for real discipleship, for real commitment? And he prayed earlier that we would be as a church 
a genuinely committed church to evangelism. In all honesty, I think we're kind of on the edge of whether or not we are. And it's a, it's a powerful thing, God's Word. It, it's when you yield to His promises that you begin to be liberated in a way that it's not so hard to engage in evangelism. We're getting there. But I don't want to be the minister of a church that's getting there. Next Sunday night, we have the great privilege of baptizing Tarek. Some of you will know Tarek. Been wonderfully converted. He's come from a background that says that's never going to happen. I want the church to be full of people like him. Because God wants it. And of course, in the end of the day, none of this is about techniques, is it? Or strategies or plans or programs. Nothing to do with that. It's just a heart. Or do I think that my wisdom and preferences are right or justifiable in the face of what God clearly says in his word so I can more easily fit into the culture around me? Do I find myself saying things are different today, things have changed in our culture, attitudes have changed, so I need to change, or at least quietly go along with it to get a hearing? If I look back over the last two or three years as a church, do you know the honest, honest view of my heart is I would love to have been able to find a way to say all the stuff that is going on is wrong, is fine. And I'd love to have found a way for two reasons. One, because of the hypocrisy of my own heart. And second, because it would have been altogether easier. But there is no security to be found outside of the will of God. Ever. And remember, as we come towards a close, the second half of verse 7. I keep thinking about verse 7 this week, not because I've learned some Hebrew words. It's a very striking verse, isn't it? He looked for justice, mispat, but behold, bloodshed, mispa. He looked for righteousness, sed aqua, but behold, an outcry, sed aqua. You look really sorted. And you look at me, and you think I'm really sorted. God sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees deep into your heart. Now, where or what is the purpose of all of this? I've been pains to say, and I think you see this from the text of Isaiah, that God says strong things here. His therefores are challenging. But do you feel really, as you read the text of Isaiah, a vindictiveness or a pettiness 
or a, a grumbling, or I told you so, any of that in God's heart? It's a broken heart. God does all this not to rub our faces in the bad fruit, but out of his love and mercy to call us to something better. And I'm not going to tack on the gospel at the end of the sermon as a kind of shoehorn. Where I'm going to turn us to is to the Lord Jesus who said some stuff with Isaiah 5 in his mind. Turn to John 15. Everything we've listened to in Isaiah 5, the vineyard, the place of fruitfulness, the Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine, or I am the vineyard. I am the perfect example for you of what it is to yield spiritual fruit. God's Son without sin. Righteous. But the striking thing for the Christian is that the Lord Jesus is not our example, is that we are in Him and He in us by the Holy Spirit. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. In other words, he lops off the branches that are dead in the end. But that's not us, God willing, if you know and trust the Lord Jesus. You are a branch that bears fruit. I look back on my life as a Christian, you look back on yours. You do not see, I guess, fruitlessness. You can't be fruitless if you're a Christian but you will see not much fruitfulness in long periods of your life as I do. Drift. Compromise. And God wants to take your life and our corporate life as a church and prune it that it might bear more fruit. We got a new shed this week. God, in very striking little ordinary ways, burns the Word of God into your heart. I discovered yesterday, when I put the tools that were all over the house in all sorts of cupboards and in strange places for gardening implements, into the shed, we had four pruning shears. And immediately in my mind, John 15 came back to me, because I need about four pruning shears Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. What a wonderful phrase that is. Abide in me. Not obey my commands. Not do what I have told you. Abide in me. Live in me. Live in me, Jesus says. And let me live in you. Is there vindictiveness in the heart of God in Isaiah 5? 
Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is that which bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The fruitful periods in your life and mine as a Christian are almost certainly the periods when we were regular in church and small group, listening to God's Word. Listening, not just being there, reading our Bibles day in, day out, and praying to God. The fruitful periods in the life of a church in a nation are the periods when the church in a nation listens to God's Word. The church in a nation's quiet time. They do what God's Word says. And they pray. And Jesus says to us, as a church, on the road, well, maybe you did abide in me over that difficult stuff. But now, Abide in me in a new, in a deeper, in a sharper, in a stronger way. And what does it lead to? Just look at the end of that little section. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, then you will go through a really hard time, which you might. If you keep my commandments, then you live with a big struggle, you might. What does he say? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's striking. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now that is where Isaiah 5 ends. The broken heart of God says the strongest things to his people. And where does it end? I will love you and my joy will be in you in all its fullness. Always remember that your security is in God and God alone. Walk in the light of the Lord. Do what His Word says. Tell Him you cannot live without Him. And you are completely and utterly secure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for each one of us sitting here that the refining fire that is the Word of God would breathe by your Spirit through all of our lives and smelt the dross, burn up the alloy, whether it's greed or pleasures that we know are wrong, whether it's dragging sin behind us, tethered to it like a horse in a cart, 
whether it's calling what is dark light, whether it is conceit or arrogance, that we are more shrewd than you. Help us, Lord, to listen with soft hearts. And change us individually. Change us as a church. And help us to remember the spotlight is first and foremost always on us. And when we're all at sea or on the road or feeling that all the stuff like the walls of Jerusalem then and the temple is where our security is to be found, help us, Lord, to always remember that security is to be found in the Lord Jesus and in you and in you and in him alone. And that comes from abiding in him and obeying his word and depending on him in prayer. Keep us safe and those we love and have mercy upon us. And you do again and again. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.